as you may notice, the older, balder version of myself is not here today, which means you are stuck with the younger bishop in the one-man show. I got to say, it's always a bittersweet moment to be able to preach um, where my father stands. You know, it being Father's Day, I didn't get to say anything cheesy, and since he's gone, I'll do it now. Very blessed to have the father I have. Uh, but more than that, I'm very blessed to have a lot of the spiritual men in this church who have really taken me under their wing as a child in God. Um, I want to say a special thanks to the elders and many of the deacons who have worked tirelessly to train people like me, because I'm not the only one in this room that could say the same thing. In fact, there is a booth full of people right now who can say the exact same thing. So thank you to all of you who are working so tirelessly to train the youth, because, man, we need it, perhaps now more than ever. I'll try to get through the sermon as best I can. I'm losing my voice, um, so if you hear me coughing and hacking up along or taking a second to drink some coffee, I'm sorry. Got to try to get through this as best I can. <clears throat> but today I'm really excited because when we, my dad and I, were sitting down planning out our sermons, this was the one that fell in my lap. And I can't complain because this is precisely the kind of thing I love to preach on. I love telling stories. Those of you who listen to the Heritage Podcast, you know that's kind of my thing. I love digging into the text and really finding these cool things that we miss. This morning we're going to do that. And we're going to tell a story found out of Mark 9 and Matthew 18. And hopefully at the end of this, you can walk out having been challenged as we continue our study on the idea of conversion. But before we jump into it, I may be like a broken record. You may have heard this on podcasts or things before. One of the most undervalued and underutilized tool in Christianity today is the imagination. Imagination is vitally important to our understanding of the Bible. Now, I know that you're probably sitting there thinking I'm crazy for saying that, but hear me out. When I tell you a story, for instance, let me tell you a story about Daniel, my little brother. For those of you who know Daniel, what's the first thing that came in your mind? It was a picture of him, right? That was the first thing you thought of was a picture of Daniel. And if I were to tell you the story about how Daniel loves to pick on Royal, Royal's now in your head, right? You got two boys. You can see where this is going. And Daniel loves to do this thing where he walks into a room he sits beside Royal and waits for any movement. Royal moves at all. If there's not an adult in the room, Daniel's on the ground. Doesn't even have to touch him. He could just be reaching over to grab a pillow. He's on the ground. Ah! You're picturing it, right? And from that point, you can picture my dad walking in confused and frustrated because there's a screaming boy in his living room. And you can see that, right? What are you using as I'm telling you this story? Your imagination. You don't even mean to, but you are. What's interesting is we, we suspend that when we go into the Bible. And at our own disadvantage. Because we miss the cool and crucial moments in the story by sacrificing that. This morning I'm going to ask you to picture with me the story as we tell it. But in order to help us do this, I want to make sure that we get some things straight. I would like to introduce us to our characters in a way that maybe you don't know. When I say the apostles and Jesus, you, like me, probably grew up looking at a felt board. And all the apostles had, I know, because even in my day we had felt boards. I get to tell young people, you don't know what that is. And that feels good to say. But I had this felt board image of these like 12 grown men, right? Beards, robes, strong and strapping. Everything you think about when you think of a good hardcore apostle. And Jesus was older looking. I always pictured him, you know, I know he was only supposed to be like 29 to 31, but I always pictured him as like 50-something, right? Just the image. I'd like to take you through a thought exercise that may blow your mind as much as it blew mine. 
for all those people that I've asked to help me, minus our youngest one, not yet, but if I could have everyone who I've asked to help me come up here real quick and just stand right here for me, that'd be helpful. <clears throat> As we go through the story, I want you to know a couple of things that are very important. We have a broken depiction of ages in the Bible. Right here, this would have been roughly the age of Jesus. Lock it in your head, right? Not exactly what you expected. Very handsome, but not what you expected. <laughs> There's no gray hair, I don't think. Otherwise, he dyes it, and he does a good job. But this is what the age of Jesus would have been like. This right here, the age of John. Apostles were young. It's crazier. Mary Magdalene, you hear a lot of stories about Mary Magdalene. She's going to make a guest appearance in this story today. Right around Maddie's age. Peter, one of the oldest apostles, the one who was married with a kid, about Nathan's age. Can you imagine that, Nathan? <laughs> For those of you who are listening on the podcast, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. For those of you who are listening on the podcast, we brought up four people that you would expect to be 15, 16-year-olds. Just imagine a teenager in your life, and you have an image of the apostles. Now, how does this change the stories for you? Because when I discover this, it changes stories for me, right? Jesus going place to place with people that didn't have it all figured out and were kids? Well, that makes a lot more sense when John does things like gets so scared that he curls up on the lap of Jesus. That becomes a very tender and sweet moment. Something that if you didn't use your imagination to have the right image, you lost that beautiful father-to-son moment. Or that moment when Jesus is at the cross and he's looking down and he sees his mother and she's scared. And she see, he sees this 13-year-old boy who's even more scared. You remember what he says? Behold your son. And John, behold your mother. These tender moments take on new light when we understand the full story. I have some other things up there like to help age them. I'm not going to go through them. If, you, if you're interested, they're on your notes. Feel free to look at them at your own leisure, but I'm not going to take up the time doing it. As we go through today's story in Matthew chapter 18 and Mark chapter 9, I want you to have that in your brain, okay? Picture people like that. And let's tell the story. It's been a year and a half since Jesus first called the apostles, and they have been traveling all over Galilee. In fact, they split up. Several of them went in pairs all over Judea. Their objective was, as followed, to tell people that the Messiah is coming. Now, you can already start to see how radical this is, right? We always thought it was kind of strange that Jesus took fishermen off a boat, put them on the ground, and were like, hey, you're now missionaries, go, with basically no training. That in and of itself is absurd. It's even more absurd when you consider that these were like 16, 17-year-olds. Hey, you two, pair up and go, and I entrust you with the kingdom of God. What? So these guys start spreading out and going. They had an assigned time in which they were all going to come back together and kind of regroup talk about the successes, pray over the, the things they needed to work on, and spend some time in teaching. This is kind of the model of Jesus. They would come together, they'd break apart, and then they'd come back together, and Jesus would teach them more deep things. That's why if you start reading the Gospels, they get more complex as they go through. Because his rabbi students, these kids, could handle more. At first, it was very simple images, easy stories to understand. Turn the other cheek. Don't get mad. Try to be forgiving. And as it would go on, it would be, let me tell you about the end of time. Let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you what the responsibilities are as they have these times together. So they're all gathering together, and they're very excited because this is kind of their homecoming. For the first time in a year and a half, they get to go back to their area. They get to see their friends and family. You can imagine the excitement of John, at least I do. John has all these stories. He's 13. 
And he's cast out demons and watched Jesus heal the sick, feed people with loaves. He watched Jesus change the world. And so the excitement of him wanting to run into his house and tell mom and dad everything that he had experienced is so pure and beautiful. And every step they took towards Capernaum, that joy was rising. The emotions were there. Until eventually they arrived at Peter's house in Capernaum. But the person in the story that I'm most interested in, and a person that we're going to spend some time talking about, is Peter. Peter had the most to look forward to. Like we talked about at the beginning, he had just gotten betrothed and married literally right before Jesus called him. We know from church history that his wife's name was Mary. Don't know anything else about her. I really wish we did because I'd like to know more about the wife of Peter. She had to put up with a lot. Peter was a lot. But they just had this this marriage fulfilled, and then they had a child either while he was away or right before he left, an older daughter. And this right here would have been Peter's coming home to his wife, to his kid, to his family. And he was so excited to do it. He was traveling alongside of Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary the mother of James, and Jesus himself. That was his group. And as they got close to Capernaum, other apostles started to join them. John came, Andrew came, all of them started gathering. And Peter had kind of this laser focus on just wanting to get home. But the other apostles, well, they started bickering. Don't know if you've ever been on a long car trip with high schoolers. You should. It's a blast. But inevitably, about halfway through, especially if they're sleep-deprived, it's going to go downhill real quick, right? There's going to be fighting. There's going to be tensions. After church camp, that's the most miserable drive of all time. When you have a van full of angry, tired, hungry teenagers. Anything can set them off. Well, imagine that for a year and a half of traveling with really any kind of, without any kind of amenities at all. And that's kind of where the apostles were. And so Peter, excited to get home, wasn't really involved in the conversation, but everyone else behind him was fighting like cats and dogs, asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? I mean, they just came back. It's a logical thing for teenage guys to fight about, right? They come back and they say, okay, you might have done that, but I cast out a demon. So, not saying I have more Holy Spirit, but I have more Holy Spirit. And then you might have John who says, okay, sure, Peter, you might be powerful, or Andrew, you might be powerful, but I'm Jesus' favorite. In full fairness, John did refer to himself as Jesus' beloved one throughout his entire book. So they started arguing and having this normal teenage fight. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And all of them had their reasons. All of them had their rationale. And then they got into Peter's home, and it all kind of stopped. Everyone's excited, jumping up and down and celebrating as they're with the family. But as the emotion kind of settles down, Jesus kind of claps, gathers everyone. They get in their normal position, starting with John on his left, oldest to youngest, Peter on his right, and the women in the middle. And he asked them a question. What were you guys fighting about? And of course, good teenagers, they didn't want to lie to the Son of God. They've seen how that's turned out. So they just choose to remain silent. Jonathan, if you'll read this next passage for us here, Matthew chapter 18, if you want to follow along in your Bible. Go ahead, Jonathan. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So then, he said, they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a child and stood her in the middle of them. I'm telling you the truth, he said, unless you turn inside out and become like children, you will never, ever get into the kingdom of heaven. Right in the center. 
the middle of the lesson. I'm not going to keep up here too long, I promise. Maybe I will. I'm a preacher. I talk really long. In the middle of a lesson, Jesus kind of quells the arguments. And as they start reuniting, they get all ready to go. They're fighting. Jesus doesn't really say anything. He just leans over and grabs probably Peter's oldest daughter, who would have been very, very young, probably younger than you, and brought her right up to the middle and said, look, lock this image in. Lock this image in. Because this is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the most powerful, the most important. This is it. Okay, Hazel, you can go to class. Thank you very much. (laughs) Sorry. It's adorable. I mean, goodness gracious. Anyway, so that would have been the image. Lock Hazel in your mind because we're going to come back to her in just a second. And now I want to paint the whole picture for you. How absurd is this story? Just break it down and think about it. You have a compilation of people, none of which deserve to be rabbi students. None of them came from the right lineage. None of them were educated. Most of them were fishermen. You had a terrorist in there. You had a tax collector who betrayed Jews all around. And in the middle of that, they're arguing, those people who shouldn't be where they are, they're arguing about who's the greatest of them. Not only that, but they're sitting in a home of a fisherman's hovel with a bunch of women who were demon-possessed, who in that time was taboo, and they're fighting about which one of them is the best. And to, make, to just show and frame how absurd this conversation was, Jesus takes the only person in the whole room of lesser societal value than them and brings her up front and sits her down and says, that, that's the greatest. And the absurdity of that moment is almost comical if you read it in Matthew 18. Because that's what's most important. And guys, it's just as absurd to us today. Hazel Bryan is still the greatest in the kingdom of heaven today. And goodness gracious, we all have arguments, right? Well, I'm Bishop Darby. I graduated magna cum laude from Friedhardt with a degree in theology. Pretty righteous. Right? It'd be easy for someone like Scott to stand up and say, well, okay, Bishop, yeah, you might have had a degree, a piece of paper, congratulations. I am an elder of God's church. A chosen pastor. And someone else could stand up and say, okay, Scott, but I, and we could get in the same arguments about who's more righteous. But at the end of the day, we're all just sinners pointing at each other, arguing like the 12 apostles, who's best in our brokenness. It's an absurd story, but it's an absurd problem we still have today. Which one of us is most best in our broken state? Who cares? Because the purity of that child is what we should aspire towards. That is the whole point of it. This story reveals to us something very important. Maybe at this point you're wondering how in the world this has anything to do with conversion. Hang with me, I promise it'll make sense, hopefully. This idea is so vital because that seemingly is impossible for someone like me to attain, right? I'm 26 and I'm pretty messed up. 26. And I'm pretty... I'm way too young for that. And I'm pretty messed up. I've sinned a lot. I've made a lot of terrible decisions, right? And the innocence of that child is almost scary to me because there's no way I'm that. And I don't really see how I can become that again. Something has to change dramatically in me for me to even have a chance of being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For me to go back to that innocence. Something remarkable is going to have to change. 
Jesus uses a word in this story, the word for turning inside out. Turning inside out is the word he uses when he's referencing, unless you turn inside out like a child. That's the word strafo. It's our next conversion word. It's just Greek for turning inside out. And this is the word most commonly used by Jesus to talk about conversions. The process of turning oneself inside out. And that is how Jesus said that's the only way you're going to be able to achieve the absurd and make yourself like a child. Every single part of you, every fabric of who you are, every thought you've had, every preconceived notion needs to be turned inside out because otherwise we'll never be able to return back to what God wants us to be. And the reason is pretty simple. It's because along the way we've strayed a really far away from what we were supposed to be. We all at one point were hazel. Innocent and pure. Last night, the Bryants came over um, to do something in my parents' hot tub. The kids were there, and I was outside working on my sermon, so I went in the garage and let them do their thing. And as I was sitting there, I couldn't help but laugh because about halfway through, they started, I think it was Eleanor and Hazel were talking about who's the mermaid. And just the laughter and the joy in life. They were splashing around in hot water, and you would have thought they were in Disney World. Why? Because their life was so enjoyable. They have such a passion. I've watched Hazel Bryant with my brother Daniel build fairy gardens for six hours. Matchboxes, empty cans, twigs, and whatever they can scrounge together creating this and laughing the whole time as if they're having the best day of their life. Why? Because they have that joy and passion for life, that purity and innocence. What happened to me? Where is that gone? Jonathan, will you read these two passages for me? The wages paid by sin, you see, are death. But God's free gift is the life of the age to come in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin reaches maturity, it gives birth to death. Somewhere along the lines, we started making choices, different choices, choices that were contrary to that beautiful, pure nature. And maybe it started innocuous. Maybe you're seven years old. And maybe your parents have a giant jar of chocolate chip cookies, and they say, don't, don't eat them. And they leave. And you think you got some time, and so you start eating one, and then two, and then three, four, five, six, seven. They're gone. You realize that you've made a grave error. They walk in. You have crumbs all over your face, all over your fingers, chocolate all over your shirt. And mom and dad goes, whoa, where'd those chocolate chip cookies go? I don't know. An innocuous moment, right? But in that moment, you're starting to plant seeds. As James puts it, the desires are conceived. And as you get older, you choose those paths more and more frequently, and it's a gentle sway. It's a gentle turn. And so one day, you're sitting there, and you're looking in the mirror, and you don't like who you've become anymore. And you've lost that joy of life. You're racked with anxiety and guilt and fear and and stress and all of those things. You go to a job you don't enjoy and a car that you don't like and a house that you wish was bigger and a family that you wish was more perfect. And how did you get there? From here. One small choice at a time. Until eventually your ending spot is so far apart from where you began. Those decisions moved us. That's how we got there. But it only makes sense, right? Satan, uh, Satan says that his chief objective, everything he tries to do is to kill, steal, and destroy, and it makes sense. 
Because every single one of those decisions kills your joy and steals your happiness and your peace. It destroys the life worth living and it replaces it with this mirage that leaves you so empty. That's the objective of Satan. And every decision that he tries to put in front of you, that's his end game. He wants you to lose the life you're living now. Jesus, on the other hand, says, no, 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 my objective is very simple. I want you to have life. For whatever reason, we come to passages like this and we convince ourselves that what he actually means is life way off in the future, someplace called heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying, well, someday down down the road by and by, I'll give you a mansion and then everything will be fine. No, that's not what he wants. He wants you to have the life of a Hazel Bryant right now, that joy, that passion, that exuberance, the peace They want that now. He wants that for you now. So he calls on us to change. To change. To strafo. To turn inside out. To go back the earth. But the only way we're going to do that is if we come to grips with where we are now. This, admittedly, is the part of the sermon where things get a little heavy. Jonathan, will you read the story for us out of Luke 15? Jesus went on. Once there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share in the property. So he divided up his livelihood between them. Not many days later, the younger son turned his share into cash and set off for a country far away where he spent his share in having a riotous good time. When he had spent it all, a severe famine came on that country, and he found himself destitute. So he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to satisfy his hunger with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. He came to his senses. Just think, he said to himself. There are all my father's hired hands with plenty to eat, and here I am, starving to death. He came to his senses. Just think. Just think. I'm starving to death when I could have everything I want. One of the hardest things about this process, this strafo process, is the ability to look oneself in the mirror and find out where you are. And I'll be honest, the reason it's so hard is because we don't like to do that, right? We don't enjoy looking at ourselves honestly. But the reality is the perception you have of yourself is there whether you want to admit it or not. It's not like one day if you don't look yourself in the mirror that you won't feel guilt or stress or fear. No, those things are going to be there. But we have this weird thing. This weird thing about us. That we're almost afraid that if we admit how broken we are, we'll never want to get healed. Or we believe we can't get healed. To be frank, I woke up this morning and I looked in the mirror, petrified about giving a sermon. Y'all know this, I hate preaching. Petrified. Didn't sleep at all last night. So nervous. And the entire time I'm looking at myself in the mirror, you know what thoughts are coming to my head? You're not ready for this. Who are you to preach on brokenness, Bishop? Good gracious. If there was a poster of brokenness, you would be on it. And and I began to think to myself, you're right. And I started thinking of all my insecurities. And I don't even know how I got there. I'm in my armada and I'm driving to the building and, and I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, man, you know what I totally forgot? That bill's due next week. And I started thinking, okay, well, I guess I have to cut back here and cut back. And then, and then, oh man, what about this over here? And all of a sudden I'm flying all over the place. Why? Because I was scared of giving a sermon. 
and I never got control again. And how many times do I go weeks, months, where that's my, that's my prerequisite line of thinking, and I never find my center again? We need to have these open and honest dialogues with ourselves where we look ourselves in the mirror and evaluate where we honestly and truthfully are. Not being afraid to say things like, right now, I'm struggling with anxiety, depression, fear, pornography, alcoholism, whatever it is, I'm struggling with this. Calling it as you see it, because only then can you start turning yourself inside out. Once you bring it off to the table, you can leave it and walk away. The problem with us as people is we, we believe that Christianity is about being so righteous that you have no flaws. How wrong are we? Christianity is about admitting how broken we are so we can find the perfection of a God who fulfills us. Strafo, turning oneself inside out. Realizing it's not about you or your righteousness. It's not about you or your actions. It's not about you or your life. It's about God who can complete you. That's why Jesus talks about salvation in regards to life and death. In Galatians 2.20, he talks about life. You are alive because of the Messiah. Life. Salvation brings you life. This strafo, this turning inside out, it will bring you life. That's true. But the flip side is Romans 6 is also true. That you have to die first. And what that means is that every decision you made, the person that you have become because of your years of drifting and making the choices, that person has to no longer be in existence so this person can arise out of the ashes. What are we willing to kill? What do we have to kill to get there? As we end this morning, I just want to end on that thought. What is it that you have to kill today? God wants you to have a life and a life that's full. He wants you to live it richly. He wants you to have the innocence and joy of a Hazel Bryant. He wants you to turn yourself inside out and realize that life can come through him. But in your way right now, there is something. What is that thing? By the way, we all have one. We can wish we didn't. Hope we didn't, but we do. Maybe for you that thing is fear. Maybe for you that thing holding you back is anxiety. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's resentment. Maybe it's you've become too engrossed in the world. The anxieties and the fears of politics and arguing. Maybe you've lost yourself in legalism in your own faith. Maybe you've created a world of faith that is strangling you. Maybe it's that you have your own personal guilt, your own personal fear of who you've become, whatever it is, I would encourage you to bring it before God today and lay it at his feet. Let him kill it and bring something new out of the ashes. Let him turn you inside out. So the person that you become is the person who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What's holding you back today? Father, thank you so much for this time that we've had together this time of study that we've had together. And Lord, we're amazed at how 2,000 years later, your words through the pages are so lively. They can drop us in these incredible situations, and we're thankful that you chose a story to relate to us with. And this morning, Lord, as we found ourselves in the story, we found the absurdity of that child being the greatest. We saw the example of Hazel being the greatest. Father, that dissonance that we're feeling within ourselves, that desire that we have to live a life that's full and joyful is contrasted with the life we're presently living. And many of us, maybe all of us, don't even know where to start. But we ask that today we call it as we see it. We stand before the mirror and we ask that you wash over us in your love.
that you wash over us in your grace and your mercy, that you transform us and change us from the inside out so we can be the people that you want us to be. Whatever the thing is, Lord, that's holding us back, whatever decisions we've made in the past, we know that through your Son we have an opportunity to be made whole and that all of those things, all of the sins can be washed away and killed until the only thing that's left is a new man or a new woman for you. Mold us, God, today. Change us today. Turn us inside out today. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen.